0: So some of my favorite stories are ones that happen right after people get out of retreats. And one of them uh, that I've shared with some of you, a woman was having to travel and switch planes and she was exhausted. And so she was was tired, she was hungry. She got some cookies, put them in her purse, sat down at a table, there was another man nearby. She also got a newspaper. Well, he was reading his newspaper and um, she took a cookie, ate it, then he did the same thing. <laughs> he reached into the bag and took a cookie, ate it, and she was um, very confused and weirded out by that because she didn't know him, but she you know, didn't want to make a scene, so she just took another cookie and ate it and he did the same, and it kept going. And she was getting angrier and angrier until they she took, you know, a cookie. And then there was just one more. And he broke in, in half. <laughs> he gave her half. He ate the other half, and um, then he left. Well, sometime later, they, you know, the public announcement system called her to her gate. And much to her surprise, when she reached in to get her ticket, she found her bag of cookies she had been eating his <laughs> now part of why I really like that story is because we so live in our narrative inside and in a story in our mind of what is actually happening now we're not always reading reality quite as she did. But, you know, sometimes what's going on, our storyline has a useful representation of the world. Somebody is taking advantage of us or somebody might be treating us in a disrespectful way or something might be going on where it's completely appropriate for us to respond and draw boundaries and so on. And so often, and this is, you might remember Mark, Twain's one of his famous comments that the worst things in my life never actually happened. (laughs) So often, we are moving through our day with a story about what is either wrong right now or what could go wrong. And if we're not totally conscious of that story, our body is kind of living in that mentality. So our inner story is based on fear beliefs that were developed very early and for most of us is you know we have some difficult experiences with caregivers with our environment and we start believing how we can't trust certain things or how something's wrong with us and then because our survival brain has a scan for what's wrong we collect evidence And so we each collect evidence to kind of have some certainty. It gives us a sense of being on top of things, even if it's bad news, about what can go wrong and what is wrong. So we each to different degrees have some core beliefs that uh, have a reality that's limiting. And those beliefs are informing us today. They filter things. They filter how we are with other people. They filter what we perceive about other people. So, you might think of how that can happen. Maybe, you know, you were in a family where you had an older sibling that was a bully or a a parent that was drinking and became a bully or something like that. And then what happens? Well, we around other people that might have some aggressiveness in their temperament and anticipate that they're going to push us around and send out those signals of fear or insecurity or um, mistrust. And that almost provokes and brings on more. You know, we then we just keep on living cycles based on those beliefs. Or maybe for some of us, parents that were overly busy, preoccupied, you know, so when we wanted attention, they kind of pushed us aside or maybe we were really neglected. What happens? There's a belief. People don't really want to be with me. Either they're not interested in me or I'm really a turnoff, but there's a belief that gets in there. And then what happens when we have that belief? Well, that belief creates certain behaviors that send out certain messages that we keep on recreating the past. So I often use uh, turn to that, that quote by Gandhi and he talked about how our beliefs really create our way of um, acting and speaking and they and that ends up creating our whole character and that ends up creating our destiny. So it's a it's um, a, you know, it's, based on the law of karma that when this, then this. And so the sad thing is that as long as we believe our beliefs and don't investigate them, they create a reality that can perpetuate itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, The good news is that we can investigate. We can begin to challenge the storyline. And when people deepen their meditation practice, which is a practice that says, be here and see what's really going on. And I especially see this when I uh, do week-long retreats because it's more concentrative and people can end up getting to a quieter place and really see more clearly the, the nature of things. One of the reports at the end of retreats are that, and it's usually framed like this I realized I didn't have to believe my thoughts you know now that might sound simple I don't have to believe my thoughts but that is opening the gate to freedom I don't have to believe my thoughts or sometimes the, the realization is I'm not my thoughts which is a very similar experience that this world I've created it's not that's not who I am you know, the I, the, the, what it, the truth is something much bigger. That self that I'm, you know, having these ongoing uh, storylines and narratives about is just a bunch of images and words that are formed from historic kind of beliefs, but there's something much more mysterious and true that's going on. I don't have to believe my thoughts. There's a Tibetan teacher that some of you met here who has been a tremendous inspiration for me and that's Sokni Rinpoche. He has a phrase that describes this, this realization. It's real but not true. That's the way he says it. That when we have these beliefs and feelings that go with them, that's all real. Meaning, yes, the belief's actually happening and yes, the feelings are actually being felt, it's real but it's not the truth. In other words, what its belief is, what its message is, is not truth. It's happening, but it's not the reality, the truth of what's really existing. Real, but not true. So if we're suffering, we are caught in a limiting reality, one that's real, we're experiencing it, but it's not true. Our idea is not true. It's a fragment of a larger truth. So Rumi writes about this in a few different places. I'll read a few of his um, verses. But in one place he says, he writes about this tangle of fear thinking. And he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? You know, if you can just see, I don't have to believe this. The door's already open. We don't even have to open a door. It's like we're already, there's already the truth. It's already here. It's just a realization of, oh, that story is just a story. So tonight, uh, what this is leading to, what I'd like to explore with you is how this realization that our beliefs and emotions are real but not true can really um, allow us to walk through the prison door. And I want to say in advance that I feel like this is a, a, a practice that's for over the long haul. You know, we can get... We might leave here tonight with a little better of a conceptual understanding of how powerful this might be, but the more times... That you catch a belief and say, wait a minute, I don't have to believe it. And your body kind of gets that that's true. The more you'll feel some space open up. And naturally I'm going to ask you to choose some belief, some place you get caught to experiment with tonight. So you might be thinking about that as you listen. Okay. All right, so in general, what are the what are the kind of thoughts and beliefs that we subscribe to that create suffering. I mean, just sense for yourself what comes to mind. And I'll just throw out some. For for most of us, a kind of thought that creates suffering is I'm bad or I'm flawed or even the other side. I'm superior to everybody else. I'm actually smarter. or I'm actually more ethical or They create separation. Any belief that creates separation is a belief that creates suffering. So what else? I'm unlovable, right? I'm unworthy. I'm unsafe. These are the kind of beliefs that keep us stuck. And they're propagated a lot through the culture. Some cultures propagate limiting beliefs more than others, I suspect. I haven't done a know, cross-cultural comparison on this, but you can really feel it in, in cultures that have, um, you know, kind of rigid religious beliefs that are, um, you know, telling us that we're fundamentally impure, flawed, that we must redeem ourselves, that we're starting in the red. You know, we, we have to do things to be saved because fundamentally something's wrong. Well, that sets the groundwork pretty well for a lot of us, right? Remind you of one of my favorite monastery stories uh, where a monk arrives at the monastery and he's assigned to helping the other monks copy the old canons and laws of the church by hand. But he realizes they're copying from copies. And he realizes that could be a problem. Because if there's a mistake in any of the copies, then they're just going to perpetuate the mistake. It's the same idea with beliefs. If we believe something and we act according to it, we're just going to perpetuate a false belief. So they're doing that with these uh, scriptures and so on. So, you know, he challenges it. And the abbot says, you know, we've been copying from copies for centuries, but I'll go check it out. So he goes into the dark caves that are underneath the monastery. And these are uh, where the original manuscripts kind of locked in a vault hasn't been opened for hundreds of years hours go by nobody sees the abbot so finally this young muck gets worried so he goes downstairs and what he sees is this abbot is banging his head against the wall and crying uncontrollably so he's you know father father what's wrong and in a choking voice the old abbot says the word was celebrate So it's fun. But how many of us got messages and believe those messages that there's actually um, a, something dangerous about enjoying too much? You know, that if something good happens, something bad might be around the corner. So we get a little bit worried. I mean, is there these just make sense that that we it's not so easy just to open up to good things. We often feel I'm not deserving, often. In some level we feel we can't trust ourselves, we can't trust our bodies, we can't trust our sexuality, hence a lot of the religious uh, rules and regs. And in some basically we can't trust our aliveness, that these emotions, these passions, these feelings are not reliable, we can't listen to them. It's not okay how we are, we're flawed. So prevents us from savoring life, these beliefs. Now, we also have beliefs that are um, perpetrated by racial, ethnic groups, those in power primarily, that cause us to hurt others. Uh, I'm thinking right now a lot of the uh, recent tragedy in the Sikh temple in Wisconsin. I spent many years with the Sikhs and uh, have a, a real sense of appreciation for uh, Sikhism and uh, and so it's more, a little more personal for me. And it's yet another example you know, of beliefs that end up creating violence. And we can see it in so many places. We can see it, you know, we see it in Wisconsin. We also see when we go to war and we, our military attacks in Afghanistan and innocent civilians go, and what's the reason we're there and how come we're doing this? In some way, there's a creation of an evil other a belief in a bad other that keeps us at war with each other through the centuries. It has to be there. We see in Syria the dictatorship going against its own people. You know, a bad other that warrants violent attacks. You have to have a belief like that for violence to come up in the level it does. So we have these deeply built in notions of this is right and this is wrong and this is how people should look and this is how people should act and this is how I should be. And it's constantly moving through our brain, monitoring and filtering everything that goes on, these standards and ideas. So we, we read people through this veil of, of our beliefs. Now some of you might remember this inquiry you can imagine and I'm bringing it in because we're about to have some elections here, that it's time to elect a new world leader, okay? And your vote counts. Only your vote counts. So I want you to listen carefully. So here are the facts about three leading candidates. Okay, you ready? One, candidate A associates with crooked politicians and consults with astrologists. He's had two mistresses. He also chain smokes and drinks eight to 10 martinis a day. That's your first choice. Candidate B, he was kicked out of office twice, sleeps until noon, used opium in college, and drinks a quart of whiskey every evening. That's your second choice. Candidate C, he's a decorated war hero, vegetarian, doesn't smoke, drinks an occasional beer, and never cheated on his wife. Okay? So, you might feel this is a setup, but I'm going to (laughs) say, so which which of these candidates would you choose? You know? How many for candidate A? We have a few sprinkling here. How about candidate B? He's the one that was kicked out of office twice, sleeps until noon, used opium in college, and drinks a quart of whiskey. How many? I see a sprinkling of hands. How many for candidate C, the vegetarian who doesn't smoke? I see more hands. Okay, I'm gonna tell you who they are. Candidate A, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Candidate B, Winston Churchill. I didn't know he slept until noon, but I knew about the opium. (laughs) Candidate C is Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, vegetarian, right? Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't want to hurt animals, you know? So here's the reason I share this. It's just that we live in a lot of assumptions that we don't challenge. You know, we, we live in the, what I call a trance of the unreal other. And I'm gonna be talking about this more I have a, um, a, a night that I'm gonna be really exploring this with you in September. But we live with our ideas about others, about ourselves, and about the world. And illusion can only exist until we challenge it. It can only exist until we challenge it. And if we don't, it propagates these stereotypes, not just a sense of bad self, but the stereotypes that we know so well that shame and oppress and marginalize minority people, racial, sexual, gender orientation, religion, it has us create separation and hurt others. So I'm gonna give you some examples through the rest of this talk of real but not true. And the first one just to share with you is of a very dear friend who's a brilliant woman, a brilliant African-American, an academic, also consulting, community activism, hung in with white institutions in terms of her schooling, her teaching, her work. And so she always had to work extra hard, you know, to get recognition and uh, working against a lot of the barriers that come with being just assumed to be an outsider, very painful, the message that she felt like she got was basically you're less valuable and you don't belong. Just now she's, you know, because I just talked to her this week, she's going through another cycle of revisiting how much that message got internalized. So she became her own enemy by being in situations, assuming in some way that that's what people were feeling and anticipating rejection Anticipating, not being valued, having her defenses up prematurely, being angry, and then actually creating the situation of being alienated. So she's owning it. she's getting that she internalized it, and she's now helping to create the situations. She also gets that it is absolutely pervasive through the culture, and that she um, that she was one of the victims of that, not in a way that oh I feel victimized, but an honest recognition that our culture puts down certain people. So she, her work now is um, to really bring alive this kind of practice of saying it's real. Yeah, the hurt, the feelings of being marginalized, the pain of this is real. So holding that with compassion. But it's not true that I'm unworthy. It's not true that I'm not valuable. Challenging that. And she feels like every time she goes through the cycle and she goes deeper into real but not true, she's actually able to, um, to live from a kind of confidence that attracts and that's able to communicate in, in a more clear way. Again, our beliefs create feelings. Our feelings create actions. You know, our, our actions starts molding our temperament, our character. It creates a kind of karmic destiny. And we can change that. And the only place we can change our destiny is in this moment to sense the storyline going on, however we make ourselves wrong, however we make someone else wrong, and investigate. Pause and look more deeply. Okay? So the deep belief that every one of us has, and this one doesn't matter what kind of parents you had or what kind of culture you're in, the deep belief that we all have is this perception of separateness until we're really, really free. It's possible to wake up and recognize this oceanness and and sense, oh yes, there's right now a temporary body-mind functioning, but the what I am, there's a timelessness too, it's possible. But for most of us, we spend a lot of life moments very identified with a separate self. That's the core belief out of which every other painful belief arises. And let me just check around, does that make sense that every other painful belief arises out of that core sense of I'm separate? That if I'm separate, then oh, I have something to fear. Others could be a threat to me. If I'm separate, oh, I'm incomplete. I'm missing something. I need this. If I'm separate, oh, other people have it better, jealous. If I'm separate, I don't have what it takes, depressed. Every emotion arises out of that pain of separation. This is Sri Sargadatta, who's one of my favorite of the non-dual teachers. He says, as long as you imagine yourself to be something tangible and solid, a thing among things, you seem short-lived and vulnerable. And of course, you will feel anxious to survive. But when you know yourself to be beyond space and time, you will be afraid no longer. So what he's pointing to is that all the real experiences we have are not true because they don't allow us to recognize that which is timeless. They keep us locked in a small separate self. They're not the truth. So we then begin to explore is this idea and storyline of a separate self, the self character we, you know, see going into the future that's trying to get happier and trying to feel better and trying to avoid danger, is that who we are? And is that all that we are? I mean, are you something more than this sense of a separate body-mind? Is there something more to what you are? It's probably the most important question we can ever ask ourselves. Because as long as all that we are, where there's an exclusive identity with this ego, personality, body, self, we're going to fear the end, fear death. We're going to feel threatened. We're not going to be able to sense our connection with others. And we're not going to be able to sense that one timeless, radiant awareness that's really animating everything. We're cut off. So how do we begin to move from a stuck place? where We're buying in, we're believing our beliefs, we're believing not only am I separate, I'm bad and I'll never be loved and I'll never get what I want or whatever it is. How do we wake up from that? How do we start truly experiencing something larger? So I'll give you another Um, Example, because the first step really is to ask yourself, whenever you're suffering, just ask the question, what am I believing right now? Just ask yourself, what am I believing? And what you're really doing is you're asking the part of you that's stuck and in pain, what am I believing? The part that's afraid or ashamed, what's the view of the world through that part's eyes? Okay, so the next story uh, a woman uh, recently went to a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society and was doing was meeting with Joseph Goldstein, one of the teachers there and at this retreat, um, she was feeling a very familiar set of emotions of feeling very lonely and feeling a yearning for for more connection, and a lot of feeling of hurt and and pain. And with that, the sense, I need love. Love is missing from my life. I need love. So she could see how many of the emotions and feelings and thoughts all came down to, I need love. She'd gotten to that. So she goes into an interview with Joseph, and I'll just step Take a step back for a moment and say, Joseph is one of my very first teachers in this tradition, and he's wonderful, very, very clear, and if you have the occasion to listen to his talks or read any of his books, you'll find him an inspiration, as he was for this woman. So she goes into the interview, and she says, you know, I've really gotten down to the core, and it's a sense that I need love. And she and and says, and here's my question. If I can't offer it to myself How do I find it? Okay, that was her question. So to her surprise, his response was, well, bring your awareness to that need for love and just look at it as another story. Initially, she was uh, real aversive to that idea. and you know, she she said you know how could the need for love be just a story you know i'm a human being and i need love you know and and so isn't you know isn't that what we all need and you know so she was she was resistant so he calmly responded this is what he said you don't have to sign a contract just try to look at it as a story and if you feel it doesn't work then come back to believing you're someone in need of love <laughs> That's vintage Joseph, by the way. <laughs> you don't have to sign a contract. So um, she went out and began doing walking, meditation, and so on. And when she'd have um, you know, any thoughts or feelings that it had to do with that same constellation, she would just challenge. She'd say, who, need, who, who says I need love? I mean, this is a story. And she said that as she began to do that, not just be, have that story be the truth, would just say okay here's a st- it's just a story she, It they made room for her heart to open up and she started feeling the most open-hearted she had felt in a very very long time she said i i could feel my heart in its fullest expression holding on to that belief i need love was closing my heart to myself once i let go of believing it i was empowered my heart was just already there full with love This is real, but not true. The belief that I don't have enough love in my life, that something's missing, that something's wrong, is a very real and often very deep, and as we'll talk about, very tenacious feeling. We need to respect it by saying, yes, it's real, and offering it real attention. And we don't have to believe it there can be that kind of crack that starts opening up space and says, and it's a story. And by opening up just that space that, it's as Joseph said, just that willingness not to sign a contract, but just to say, well, this is a story. There's something that's more true that has room to shine through. It's not being obscured by this real dense belief. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is the first step. What am I believing? And to look through the eyes of that suffering place. The second step is really on some level to say, is this true? Now here, this is a question that uh, Byron Katie, uh, if you haven't read Byron Katie's book, she is uh, one of the uh, real pioneers and a really wonderful teacher in being able to wake up out of limiting beliefs. So I recommend her very, very highly. So this question, is this true, okay? Now, maybe you'll ask that question, you know, is it true that I'm a worthless failure? Yeah, it's true, you know. But even if you affirm it, just by asking the question, you're still opening up the space of a question of an inquiry which is larger than the pure assumption. It opens up some space just to ask. It makes room. For many of us, we'll ask that question and we'll say it will seem so, but there's some sense of probably, but maybe not, you know, something like that. Asking the question is really important. The next step though, to me, is at the heart of it, which is, What is it like to live with this belief? And what does it do to our body and our heart if we're always saying to ourselves, I need love, or I'm not lovable, or I'm flawed? What does it do to us? What if we really examined what happens in our body, in our heart and in our mind when in the background we're buying into a belief like that, I'll tell you my own story of because I've done many rounds of, you know, saying okay, what am I believing now, and and saying is it true? And one of in one of these rounds, and this was way way back, early days of meditation, I was attending teachings with a, a very popular teacher, and we go. I went to a number of events, day longs and weekends and so on, and. After about a half a year three quarters of a year, because I was kind of doing it intensively, I came to this conclusion that he didn't like me and it was a really painful conclusion because I would go with different friends, different people from the you know the, from a spiritual community, and he would joke around with my friends and I would say something, and he almost wouldn't it would be like i wasn't there so he was ignoring me and um he seemed disappro- either he would see, have a disapproving look or he was ignoring me. Now, so is it true? Seems so. <laughs> you know, it really felt like it was. But you know, who knows? But then I asked the question: Well, how does it feel to believe that he doesn't like me? And it put me right into a, a very familiar young place of really needing somebody in particular to approve of me and feeling very caught in feeling insecure and unappealing and feeling uptight and just the neediness itself, feeling ashamed of. So there's a mix of wanting something and being ashamed of wanting. Really unpleasant, very young feeling. So so asking that question, what's it like to live with this? I realize, oh, this is putting my body, mind a very, into a suffering place, you know, then the inquiry, well, what stops us from letting go? I mean, why do we hold on? What, what has us hold on to beliefs about ourselves that are clearly keeping us at war with ourselves and separate from others, that are limiting our capacity to find joy? You know, how can we hold so tight? And what I find for myself is almost like, well, I'm not gonna be made a fool of, I'm gonna know that this is going on. You know, I'm nobody's fool, you know, I'd rather know it even if it's unpleasant and have some certainty, than I get caught off guard. Does that resonate for some of you? We, we want certainty and we will believe things that are really, really unpleasant if it gives us some orientation because then we feel at least we can get a modicum of control. We can do something if we know rather than just say, well, I don't know, maybe he does or maybe he doesn't, you know. So we hold on tight because it gives us the illusion of control. There's a classic Zen story, and many of them start this way of, you know, a man being chased by a tiger, falls off the edge of a, you know, ends up falling from a precipice, finds himself hanging perilously from a limb, and the tiger's pacing above, and there's jagged rocks, you know, way, way below, calls out, help, is anyone there? And there's an answer, yes, booming from the heavens. God? <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, can you help me? Yes, you need to do only one thing, says the great booming voice. I'll do anything. Then just let go. Is anyone else there? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Silly, I know, but you get the gist that it's like we'll do almost anything than just say, well, what would happen? I'm not signing a contract, so what would happen if just for a while I said, okay, this is just a story? What makes us willing to say this is just a story, even for a while? And what I've found is what makes us willing to challenge, to say this is real but not necessarily true, is that when we get the suffering of living with the belief, and when we really get, this is keeping my life small. This is stopping me from having intimacy with others. This is like stamping down any creativity. This is, um, I'll be at the end of my life looking back and I'll have lived my life inside this prison. When we get that suffering, there's some willingness. We can't will it, but there's some willingness to say, okay, the belief is real, but it's not true or it might not be true. That's all we need, a little space. So, for me, in in that situation, just to kind of finish it off, um, there's another question that we can ask that I want to share with you. Once we've said, you know, what's it like to live with this belief? And I really got, oh my God, really, really small. Then we asked the question, what would life be like if I wasn't believing this? And we're just, this is where we begin to say, okay, sent the possibility. This is where our destiny can change. What would it be like if I wasn't believing it? Now, if you ask that question before you've really felt what it's like to live with it, it's going to be mental and abstract. You will not get a real response. But if you've opened up your compassion by sensing what it's like to live with that belief, then you can say, well, what would it be like without it? Okay? I'm saying that because it's really important that you don't skip over the step of feeling the suffering of the belief. Okay, so what would it be like without it? And for me, when I tried that on, And I I remember very distinctly, I was just back from a weekend where I was, you know, really feeling in the grip of, you know, why do I keep sitting with this guy? He doesn't like me, you know, and it makes me feel bad. And I went through this whole process I've described and when I said, well, what would my life be like if I didn't believe this? And I felt almost like this bubble of laughter in my heart. You know, it's like something there was something so dramatic and freeing and entertaining. It was almost like a laughter inside because I realized I'd be free to appreciate him. I'd be free to just learn the teachings because he had a lot to share. I'd be relaxed. I'd be more spontaneous. I wouldn't be in that needy little girl wanting approval space. I'd just be natural. I'd be freed up, you know. So I'd be able to let the dance unfold itself without that filter that was historic of somebody doesn't approve of me. It was a real experience, but not true. Then I even went deeper, you know, because when we say what's true, well, is there really, you know, when I was thinking he is rejecting me, okay? Inside that teacher, was there a he, this little personality self judging and rejecting me? Is that who he is? A judge that rejects? He's more than that. I knew that. doesn't mean he doesn't have judgments, but the who he is, the truth, the wholeness of who he is, more than that. Am I this little person who's a rejectable self? I might have feelings of rejection. They're real, but the truth is I'm bigger than that. So can you see where this inquiry went to? This real but not true took me back to who I really am. This beingness, this awareness, this tenderness that sure has all sorts of conditioned streams of feeling insecure, but that doesn't speak to the wholeness. So this is what the Buddha described as a shift in identity that's possible when we're caught inside a belief if we're willing to examine it. Illusion exists unless it's examined. And this is really very much the um, invitation of this path of mindful awareness. Because each one of us has, has places where we get stuck and get caught in a sense of the who I am that's very small. Every one of us, unless we're free, we live many moments of our day inside a wanting self, a fearing self, a worried self, a striving self, you know. I read somewhere that Aristotle described our true nature as our highest potential. That it doesn't mean that this ocean that we are doesn't have all sorts of waves moving through it of different emotions and behaviors, but the who we are is our highest potential, which is loving presence, which is to realize and live from loving presence. So any belief that keeps us from remembering that is a belief to examine. Any moment that we're forgetting our potential, forgetting the who's here, the the awareness that's looking through your eyes right now and listening. And that tenderness in you that wants to love freely. Any time that you're living in something smaller, in a belief that makes you smaller is a moment of suffering. Because you're not living in reality. And suffering is any moment that we are not living in reality, in our true nature. Doesn't mean we have to be manifesting it. Clearly, our highest potential to live from loving presence, we come, get caught in different conditioning. But it's possible to remember your oceanness on some level, to remember this presence, and still find yourself caught in all the neurotic daily stuff. There can be a remembering. And when you really get stuck, unpack the belief. Open the prison door. This is the way, you know, there's, a, there's a sense that when we're in pain sometimes, that it's you know, a personal suffering and that it shouldn't be happening. This is a Sufi teaching that I love. It says, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. So when the pain comes, when the emotional stuckness comes, it's part of our universal conditioning. And yet we have this incredible tool We have this incredible capacity to pause and say, well, what am I believing? We have this capacity to sense, is it true? We have a capacity to sense what our body-mind feels like when we're caught in it. And we have the capacity to sense what our life might be like without it. This is Rumi again. He says, be empty of worrying. Think of who created thought. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence, flow down and down in always widening rings of being. So tonight, real but not true, this possibility of honoring the, the pain, the emotions, the beliefs as existing, but challenging them. So we'll end in this way where we'll actually practice uh, those steps and I'd like to invite you each to you know, take a moment to be right here, finding a way of sitting that lets you come into stillness Closing your eyes. Connecting with your body's aliveness. Come home, come home right now. Connecting with your breath. And just scanning and sensing uh, where there might be a place in your life, repeating patterns that cause suffering, where you end up getting stuck in some sort of a reactivity and that leaves you caught in fear or anger. That leaves you caught in perhaps jealousy, insecurity, deficiencies, feelings of deficiency that leaves you in some way at war with yourself or someone else. I'm wrong, I'm falling short, this person is. And as you sense a situation, you might ask yourself, what am I believing? And in this case, really believing about yourself. What are you believing about yourself? Is it that you're failing, falling short? Is it that you're unlovable, unworthy, endangered? What are you believing? If you find you're digging and you're not finding something, you're just spinning around, that's quite fine. Just know that that's an inquiry that you can pursue. When you're feeling in the midst of being stuck, you can look through through the eyes of the fearful place or the angry place and just sense, what's its view of the world? Is it that others don't like me? Is it that I'll never get what I want? Is it that I'm falling short? What's the what's the view from this place? And then to really ask yourself, is it true? Just check in. Is it true? And just see what happens when you ask that. Do you get a dogged, oh sure it is, or do you get someplace and you go,es Well, I'm not sure. Seems so. Now, importantly, sense what it's like to believe this belief. Tell yourself the belief. Remind yourself of it. And, and sense what happens in your body when you really believe in this, when you've brought together all the evidence, when your nervous system is really in the mode of believing this belief. What does your body feel like? You might have sense even the expression on your face when you're believing a belief and actually let yourself make it. It'll help you get in touch. What's your heart feel like when you're believing this belief? And what happens in your life when you're believing this belief? What what How does it affect your life? How does it affect your relationships with other people? See if you can sense a natural compassion for the realness of the experience. And yet sense the belief as a story and ask yourself, what would my life be like if I wasn't believing this? Just curious, what what would it be like? And you might sense just a, a shift in your body without anything else. Or you might sense something happening with sound or your vision you might sense an image of something just for a few moments really imagine okay it's just a story what happens who would you be without that story what would your sense of your own being be And just you sense your own heart and in your heart's willingness to wake up out of the trance, the beliefs that keep you from inhabiting the truth of who you are. Just that willingness to move in that direction as you listen to these closing words from Rumi. He says, I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to sneak into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables, but no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.